Hi, this is Kathleen Mercury with another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries. And I am so incredibly excited today to have a good friend of mine on the show who is amazing. We were talking before the show and she said, uh, and I think this is so appropriate, that she said, I'm a teacher who shows kids what scientists actually do. And when you learn about Catherine and her background and everything she does, you will come to agree with me. So Catherine has her PhD and she studied neuroscience. And from there, she took that love of neuroscience into working in different fields, eventually becoming a teacher and a game designer. And she has her own company called Cat Lily Games. And I'm so excited because there's so many different aspects here that are so interesting from a games and schools program approach, you know, everything from, you know, the content and turning that into games, as well as, you know, working in the game industry and being a teacher at the same time. Catherine, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited we were able to finally work this out. Yes, this was great. And I'm really honored that you invited me. Thank you. Well, you know, it's a great price. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) let's just let's jump on in. Tell us about your background, because it's so interesting, and how accomplished you are with everything that you've done. Well, thank you. So, um, so I went to undergraduate at Duke University. And then I got my PhD in neuroscience at the University of Virginia. Um, and I specialized in synapse formation and how they're regulated during development. And then after I got my PhD in 2005, I did eight years of biomedical research, mostly on how synapses form, um, how they're regulated, a lot of microscopy, cell biology, genetics, um, electrophysiology. And um, I focused on pathways involved in autism. So I wanted to see what kind of proteins were altered in autism and how they impacted the synapses and how they functioned. And um, I found one pathway, actually, but then I realized that um, there's thousands of genes in, involved in autism. And um, it's it's more – I was more a big-picture person So after I did the first five years of my research at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, um, and when that was finished, I went to a bioinformatics lab for three years, and uh, basically we curated all of the known autism genes and all the evidence for them, and I was in charge of the protein part of the database, and I would look at protein interactions of all the linked genes and um, do network analysis to find out what do they have in common, where they express, what do they interact with, um, what do they do. And then based on the patterns I found, we would predict new genes that might be linked to autism. And so every person with autism has um, a different combination of genes that are mutated. It's not like one gene affects everybody in autism. And so um, it's more like a, a pathway problem and you approach it that way. So I assume then that that research ultimately could lead to better ways to treat and support people with autism when we understand better about how it's formed in the brain, what genes are affected? Yes. And so it's um, right now the treatments for autism, the most effective one is behavioral treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and the earlier you catch um, or detect the autism, the better. 
So if you suspect that your child might have autism and you screen them early enough and figure out what genes they have and, and what their risk is, then you can kind of do earlier intervention, which is better. Um, they can learn better social skills, better communication. Um, you can um, help with the repetitive behaviors that they have. So they have a lot of like fixed behaviors, obsessive patterns, or like uh, things they do with stress, like um, like knock their head or uh, flap their hands, things like that. And that's because of stress usually because they have sensory overload um, or they're just uncomfortable in that social situation. So if you know early about what might happen, you can help them earlier and then the better off they'll be. So we might even be able to eventually understand what genes are mutated and then more accurately prescribe treatments and therapies sooner as well. Yes, exactly. And also with this whole like new age of personalized medicine, you can figure out what drugs might help them better. And there's no drug, there's no cure for autism. And I actually don't even like saying that autism is a disorder. I mean, it, it is like the brain is, is differently developed, right? but they also have these amazing capabilities that other people don't have. Right. Um, you know, they're usually a lot of times they're really good memories and, um, they can like pick up on things and patterns that we, we can't. And so they're kind of like superpowers in a way that, and as if you lump them as a disorder, it's kind of a disservice to them because they have all these extra qualities that we don't have. So it's just more of a way of like managing the autism, um, and of course there's a huge range, right? You have like severely autistic um, people that can't communicate at all. Mm -hmm. And then like iPads and things can help them um, by like tapping. It was like there was one called like tap to dock and things like that. Um, and then the other end you have like more of like the Sheldon type, some big bang theory mm -hmm. who can communicate, but are, you know, socially awkward and, you know, very fixated on certain things. And um, so there's a whole range too. You can't really lump them all together, but um you can treat a lot of the autism, mostly the anxiety, um, because there's nothing to fix the autism, right? But you can manage their symptoms about their stress levels, their anxiety. A lot of times they have comorbid symptoms, such as like GI problems, sleep problems, and that's because the neurotransmitter levels are different. So um, if you can figure out what drugs might best help them, with the gene screening, then that's also good for the so, person. Mm -hmm. is, so is gene screening for autism available now? Yeah, if you have the resources, yes. So you can go to certain places like Columbia, for instance, and um, do the whole screen and they can, they're limited to what genes we know about, right? But they mm -hmm. can look at it and see, you know, what kind your loved one might have and, and what's the best way to deal with that. It's so exciting though. Yeah. Treatment of these kids. And I mean, I worked uh, for when I was starting to go back into teaching after working in other fields. Um, I worked for a while in a autism classroom uh, at a self-contained school and these kids were severely autistic, nonverbal, everything. And it was amazing because it just was like the world was just like, passing around them it's almost like they were just existing on this different plane because again with like communication everything it was just so incredibly hard you know yeah and it, and plus there's a lot of research about 
for higher functioning people with autism or maybe even for lower, you know, like loneliness and, mm -hmm. you know, people see, oh, they just want to be by themselves. And it's not that they want to be by themselves. It's like, this is what they can do. And, mm -hmm. and so when, and trying to, especially for girls with autism, um, there can be lots of, uh, you know, a disconnect between what we know and how we can help them. And then I also read somewhere, I think too, that autism in some ways may be actually sort of the next stage of human evolution because of these, different types of skills and abilities that people with autism have, that this may be the way that the brain is going in general for all of us. I think that might be true. And there's actually um, a survey called the Autism Quotient where, like, anyone can take it and see what kind of traits you have that match autism. Because we all have these traits to some degree. Um, but if you pass a certain score on it, like, then you're, like qualified as autistic right but you can see how close you are and like you can see the kind of things that people have and um we are kind of shifting that way um especially like it's it's actually known that in the scientist and engineer population um if they marry each other and have kids their kids are more likely to have autism um yeah so there's something going on with that and that does seem to be the way that the brain mm -hmm. is shifting that's so interesting. Well, so if we've got time, we can come back and talk a little bit more about autism and kids with games because obviously there's a lot there that's beneficial. Um, but let's talk about what you're doing now because you've got, you know, two hats that you're wearing, or probably more than two hats, but the two <laughs> main ones um, is one, your work as a teacher, as a high school science teacher, but also um, your game company, Cat Lily Games. And I love how the evolution of both of these was still kind of like intertwined, like a little double helix, if you will, <laughs> of like the different strands of your life and how they came together. So um, talk a little bit about um, how you got to where you are now. Yeah, so this is not at all where I envisioned myself originally, but I'm very happy I got here. So um, I really wanted to be a professor. That was my dream. I loved research. That was my thing. Um but I also, as I got further and further along the career ladder, um, I wasn't being fulfilled. Uh, I'm more of a people person, and I was always the person teaching someone new in the lab. Or I would just go out to high schools for fun and take brains and, and talk about, you know, drink Brain Awareness Week. Or I'd go to elementary schools and do cool little experiments. And that was fun for me. I really loved it, and most scientists do not enjoy that. They, mm -hmm. they don't like talking to people. They just want to stay in the lab and get their work done. And I saw a huge disconnect between what we did every day and what the public knows about science. And possibly because, like, like none of my friends were scientists. Like, that's just, that wasn't my world. Like, they were all lawyers and, and you know, other things. And, and, I could see like what we do and what we know and how much they didn't know about basic, basic things. So I became really fascinated by educating the public. And then um, I went to this career symposium at the NIH one day and all these like so-called alternative careers for scientists as if like being a professor is the only thing you could do. These are all alternative careers. And so it had, you know, like industry and patents and writing and all these things. And everyone seemed pretty miserable except for the panel that had the science educators and outreach. And they all made no money and they told you they made no money. 
but they were so happy and they just <laughs> loved what they did. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to be that. And I didn't know how to do that. And everybody thought I was crazy because you're like, you can't be a teacher. You know, you went to school for so long and you're so specialized. Why would you be a teacher? And so and actually that was a huge hurdle to cross was like that psychological hurdle of people thinking I was a failure and wasting my life. And, um, well, you know, yeah. and even for myself, I teach middle school and there are times when people will say like, oh, well, have you thought about doing what you're doing, you know, at the high school level? And <laughs> And it's like, as if it's like a promotion or an elevation, you know, I mean, it's different, Mm -hmm. but I invite anyone who wants to teach middle school and tell me how it's easier in some ways. No, that is the hardest job. So my hat's (laughs) off to you. Um, Yeah. So I think you're right. And basically in understanding that it has to be the right fit for you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm super middle school, you know, (laughs) I'm so middle school, but it has to be the right fit. And, you know, and it does, especially when there's all this weird pressure on you, you know, in terms of expectations to carve out the way that you know is best for you. Exactly. And yeah, so, you know, like, it's really hard. People like look down on you everywhere you go. Like, Oh, you're a teacher. Okay. You're like, Oh, you know, like that's a bad thing. And, especially my scientist friends. And I was part of this fellowship program at the NIH and I all of a sudden like wasn't invited to things. And like, I mean, now I am, it's fine now, but I'm like, yeah, I wasn't part of their world anymore. That and, is um, the most awful thing I think I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, it's just funny. And so, um, <laughs> you know, you just feel sad for some people like that. If you know, if that's your worldview. That's I feel sorry for you, but. Um, yeah, so I crossed that hurdle and I just owned it and I'm like, this is me, this is who I am, this is what I want to do. And I started teaching at this after school science center, which also was like, it was a full-time job. So it was like homeschoolers during the day Mm -hmm. and then after school people, like after school. Um, and I was in charge of the life sciences curriculum. I was the life sciences director. So it was ages three to 13 and I was responsible for all the biology, chemistry, anatomy, anything to do with life sciences. And so I had to write all the curriculum and teach it myself. And I think of it like a teaching boot camp because I learned how um, kind of to do improv. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like you have yeah. all these plans for your class and then all of a sudden you're missing stuff or something happens or you know and then like nothing works out how you thought it would yeah so you have to be really flexible and in that job especially like one hour I'm teaching kindergartners about atoms and then the next hour I'm teaching middle schoolers about um you know eyeball dissections and it was just all over the place right um and what I found was that games were a really great way of teaching them hard concepts So our classes were an hour long, and if I wanted to teach about, you know, circulation, I'd make this little, like, kind of this mat, kind of cardboard mat on the floor, and we'd roll dice and, like, race through the heart, and then they would, you know, get it that way and things like that. And um, I had a co-worker who also made games. He was an engineer um, from Carnegie Mellon, and he also just loves teaching and became a teacher, so we found that we had this shared love of games and we would talk about them and share what we did in class and he would help me and I would help him. And then, um, yeah, that's how my game company was kind of born because 
he actually had made a prototype of a game, but I was like, wow, somebody actually has a prototype? That's so cool. Because <laughs> I just never took mine that far. I didn't think they were that good. And um, his was amazing. It was this engineering card game. And we would play it in the center and play it around. It was really fun. And he was kind of shy and just didn't want to show his baby off to people. So, but I'm always like, take it out, you know, show people, do this. And he was like, no, no, no. And then um, the National Academies of Sciences in D.C., their museum had a game night. And they invited all local game designers to come play test their games with the public. And he didn't want to go, but I forced him. And I was like, I'll go with you. I'll do the talking. Um, I'll be the social person. And, you know, you bring your game. And he did, and it was a smash hit, and there were tons of people flocked around his table, and he was totally surprised. (laughs) Um, But it was really good. And then they invited him back for his own special night, just him. And so we did that, and then I was like, hey, I have a game too. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. all of a sudden I had confidence in my game. (laughs) And then... so I like printed out a copy like from GameCraft or like a, I still have it. It looks so primitive now. Um, huh. <laughs> and then I brought it for their family day because um, mine was geared towards younger kids. And it was all about life cycles. And it turned into the game we have now, which is Cycles, which, um, yeah, it's our first game. But now it actually looks nice with professional art <laughs> and polished rules. And it's actually won award won the gold medal at the Serious Play Conference two years ago, which was huge for me because I, I'm always like, I don't want to show anybody my games. I don't think they're good enough. I don't know like if it's because I'm a woman or I don't know what it is, but I I always think they're not good enough. But then they had all these judges play them, you know, blindly. I couldn't even demo it. I would just send them to them and they would play and um we won the gold, and then at the conference, I had all these people that I really admired coming up to me and being like, oh, I love your game. We play it during break hour. And I was like, what? <laughs> what is going on? So, yeah, that was the first venture. Um, that's but, so cool. Yeah, that's how it started. And when I left that company, um, he was he said, okay, well, why don't we form our own game company? And that's when Cat Lily was born in January 2015. And I was unemployed then, so I just dove into it full-time for a year. And I just, like, poured my heart into it. And we got so so many things. And we were accepted to George Mason. They have a game design institute called the Virginia Serious Game Institute. And I applied there as a business incubator for game companies and they're all digital games computers I never thought in a million years we'd get in because we're not George Mason alums we're not digital Mm -hmm. Um, but I went for the interview did the whole thing and we got in so they gave us office space and resources and um, mentorship they taught me how to run a business and just being around other game companies was amazing even though you know their video were not but it's the same theory right and they're making paper prototypes before they make their video game. So we were valuable to them and and vice versa. And, um, yeah, then it kind of became this huge thing that I think neither of us really expected. Um, So that was kind of fun. And that was (laughs) four years ago. Yeah, so where is Cat Lily now then? 
So, yes, yeah, so my friend John, my co-founder, he left two years ago, and he's now just, not just, but he's a full-time teacher, mm-hmm. um, and I'm also a teacher, but I I do that because I love it, I money, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I, I love it, but um, I run it by myself now, and there's five of us, and um, my employees come from George Mason, they're actually... They started off as interns because they have to do an internship for credit for their game design program. Um, so I have artists and programmers and, like, game theorists. and um, But most of them have graduated now, and they've stayed with the company because they really believe in the company. And, you know, we all work really well together. And even though, you know, we haven't hit it, like, big, big, but, like, it's we're getting there and like we can all see the path and so they're really loyal and wonderful and um what we're doing right now we actually have eight games that we sell locally and on our website and um we have at least five or six more that we just haven't developed yet but we have like the early version and um i basically go around pitching our games to big companies to license them and i've had quite a bit of success. I mean, I'm in talks right now, so nothing is final, but I'm in talks with three big companies, two of whom want the entire line Mm -hmm. and one of whom wants one of the games. So that's all up in the air right now, but hopefully I'll know something by the end of this year. And, um, that's super exciting. Yeah, it was really fun. So like I go around like toy fair and I've been to Astra, which is the specialty toy conference um, and I'm, we're really more, our games, they're not big, giant board games. They're very simple and relatively quick. And see, this is one thing we were talking about before the show is because when it comes to games, and, and especially I want to get into, um, you know, like the design process you undertake, because a lot of teachers design, you know, not necessarily games, they may not think of it, but any kind of classroom activity has a lot of, you know, similarities with designing games. And so if you want to design a game, you know, how do you do it? So I want to get into that. I want to get into some of the ideas that are in your actual games. Um, but one of the big things we talked about earlier, though, is just the time length. You know, the clock is a teacher's greatest enemy. There's all kinds of things we could do if only we had more time. So I think Mm -hmm. being, you know, your experience as a teacher has obviously informed the style and time of games that you're now designing, correct? Absolutely. So I, all of our games originated because we were trying to teach a concept and we're like, how do we get this concept across? So they're not trivia games. They're like, you take a STEM concept and you use it as the base for the game mechanic. So, and all of our games are very different too, because it depends on what we're teaching. So like our life cycles game, you're collecting sets of life cycles because that fits that. But like we have an engineering party game that's like a materials testing game where basically you race around the room finding objects that match the properties on your secret cards and then you get to test them. And so, and then there's another one that's like a, evolution game where it's like a dice rolling strategy game and then we have a really short game which is a a coding board game it's competitive called tacto so you program tic-tac-toe to beat your opponents oh that's fun and so yeah it's it's really simple and quick but it's like what do i need to teach and how do i teach that Mm -hmm. and you're right like 
I'm always teaching like bell to bell and I never have enough time. Mm -hmm. And especially like, cause we still have all these like, you know, state testing things that come earlier every year. And like you have to meet those deadlines. You can't waste any days. And I can't play a big, long, complex board game. Like there's so many good like chemistry games. I just can't play them in the classroom Mm -hmm. because it would take too long to learn them. And then by the time we've learned them, I, you know, it's, we can't really review the concepts that we've learned and like dedicating like two or three days to it doesn't really make sense on our schedule. We're cramming everything in. Mm-hmm. So all of my games are like, I mean, at most 30 minutes and they're initially designed, like I said, for the classroom. So when I teach with them, which I do sometimes, uh, I'll, I'll frame it. So you can't just throw a game at the kids and be like, here's your game, go play. If, if you're in a classroom, like you have to kind of introduce the idea and then they play the game and they internalize the mechanic and internalize the concept. And then at the end of the class, I like to review, you know, what, what were the things that we learned from this game? Mm-hmm. And they might not even realize all the things that they learned until we discuss it. Right. And so all of that takes time. And, and so that's why the games are so short and they're so simple because it's just one key message basically that you're trying to do well and that too relates also to like the audience that you work with too the kids that you work with i mean i teach gifted kids and so i mean i've got some kids where the more complex the better mm-hmm. but you work with just your typical mm-hmm. average high school kids yes and like i'm not saying they're not gifted kids in there but you know what i mean just <laughs> you have a much wider range of who you teach in your classes Yes, I teach high school, but I, t- I don't teach the honors or the AP. I teach the regular level, which um, I kind of love that because it's a challenge to get them excited about science because they are so tuned out. And um, there are some smart kids who are going to do well no matter what, but most of my kids just don't like science, don't care about school, don't like they're so unmotivated. So it's like I'm putting on a little show every day. Um, and it it's working. Like I get them excited and I see them like, you know, they'll go off and start playing with their own like chemicals or things in the back. And so I'm just trying to tell them, like I tell them my mission is to get you to think differently about the world, like to see Mm -hmm. the world in a scientific way. And like science is not in the classroom. It's everywhere. And so, yeah, it's really hard to get them to care. And if you play a game, that's not cheesy. It's not too complex either um it has to be the right level where they're not immediately frustrated um because a lot of these kids like they'll see even like a game that's not that hard i'm trying to think now we played like a fairly common game and they just were like ah this is too difficult and they'll just immediately give up and so you have to have it easy enough they can learn and master and then talk about it with you mm-hmm. well what are some of the topics Content-wise, in the games that you've made? Uh, we've made genetics games. So Crazy Cats is probably our most mainstream game. So it's the dice or the cat's parents. Mm-hmm. And you roll to see what kind of DNA your cat inherits. And then you get to draw on these whiteboards. And so if you roll a dominant combination, you're stuck drawing whatever we tell you. Like mm-hmm. circle head, oval body, something boring. But if you roll a recessive combination, which is harder to get, you can draw whatever you want. So it's like we've had, you know, like triangle body, hexagon body, mermaid body, you know, 
Illuminati cat. Like, all kinds of crazy things. And it sounds so silly. And we have, like, little superpower bonuses. And we try to add little fun little twists in there. But it's really... Everybody laughs when they play. Mm -hmm. And I know as a neuroscientist, like, the more you engage your brain in multiple senses and emotions, the more you remember things. Mm -hmm. And so they have a really funny time playing it. And then they'll remember what they learned. And we've actually found... I wasn't designing this for super young kids, but um, my daughter was four when I made it. And she could play with me. And then I was like, oh, my God. And so we started playtesting it with younger kids. And they love it. It's like they see the whiteboard and they're just, like, drawn to it. Mm-hmm. And um, and when they're waiting for their turn, they'll just draw, like, background scenes. And um... <laughs> you, can, um, you can introduce him. Okay. My, my pig is here. <laughs> I have a potbelly pig. And he just found his food. So hopefully he'll be quiet. That's okay. But that's his what name I find- is Hamlet. That's adorable. And that's what um, I sound like when I find my food, too, so I'm not judging at all. It's cool, baby. Eat yourself some supper. Oh, my gosh. He's so funny. Um, but, yeah, so we've been playing with preschoolers now, hmm. and they love it. And my daughter's now turning eight on Monday, and she can tell you dominant recessive, like half your DNA comes from your mom, half from your dad. Like, she knows. Mm-hmm. And um, that's so cool for me because I teach that to my sophomores in high school. And that's like one of my pet peeves actually is because with the way that like genetics is now, like all the research, all this personalized medicine, like that's standard. Mm-hmm. And we don't even get to do the cool stuff in high school because we're still teaching them basic things like dominant recessive. And I, I want to go further and do like DNA fingerprinting and all this stuff, but I, I'm, I'm trying to push for us to bring basic genetics concepts like that lower and lower because then mm-hmm. we can actually do cooler things later. Yeah. Hmm. So that's... What you that's call? one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we also have, uh, so we have genetics. We have the engineering party game. We have an evolution dice rolling like hunting game. We have um, tacto, which is the coding board game. Like, like I want to play all of these. Oh, you're so sweet. No, I'm not even saying that. Like, this sounds so fun. We were talking about, I might be doing a road trip this summer, and so uh, maybe I'll crash on your couch for a few days and we'll play yeah, games. Yeah, we should play. Together. Yeah, it'd be, be so, so fun. fun. It would be so fun. Um, that's right. The first game, Cycles, is a life cycle card game mm-hmm. where it's based off of Rummy. And that, like, to win, you have to collect three complete life cycles. Mm-hmm. But they all have special powers, kind of like Pokemon. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was actually John's twist to it. Because I just had, like, the basic game. He's like, no, you need to, like, get more appealing to the kids. And they're all into Pokemon. And um, so, like, if you start to do, like, if you start collecting plant, you have the power of harvest. You can draw an extra card on your turn. Or if you, my favorite actually is the fish. So if you start collecting the salmon cycle, you could play a round of go fish on your turn, mm-hmm. and then ask somebody for a card. And um, or the cell cycle like splits into two, so you can discard one card, pick up two. So, and you can steal from people. Like if you start building, uh, I don't know, jellyfish, I can steal from you if I have the next card. So there's a lot of like fast paced strategy, and a lot of adults like that game because it's it's really complex, but it doesn't have to be. Like you could also play for younger kids. So that one's eight and up. 
Mm-hmm. Um, what else well, and your line is so diverse in terms of both like the concepts, but also the different types of mechanics that you play around with too. Yeah. And that's one of the things I'm really proud of. And it's because we're teachers and we, you know, we're not, we're not coming at it from a pre-designed angle. It's more like, how can I teach this? Mm-hmm. And that's why they're all so very different. And, um, yeah, and so, but we, what was really, really important is to make it fun enough that you want to play. Mm-hmm. So, initially, when I first formed the company, I started marketing as, oh, these are educational games. But then I found that no kid wanted to play. Because, like, oh, you know, educational game, but I'm not playing. And, mm-hmm. like, the parent might want it, but then the kid didn't want to play it. And so, it was hard. And, but now I just do mainstream because I realized. They're fun, and, like, people just really do, like, like to play them. And so you could play it and then sneak in the learning without mm-hmm. hitting them over the head with, hey, that you're learning something. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's, yeah. I think hmm. it's all because we're teachers. Well, let's talk a little bit more about, then, the design process. Because I think for a lot of teachers who have something in their class that they, some sort of concept that they want to gamify, um... Can you maybe either pick one of the games you've done and really walk through that process or even like kind of, it would be more put you on the spot to do like hypothetically right now, like if I had a game about this, how would I approach it? You can take the easy route, what you did or how would you do it? Well, I'm trying, the first game, the cycles game, that was probably, so I had to teach them for some reason, I forget why. I was in charge of teaching them the mushroom cycle. Okay. To this class. That was my task. And I'm like, how boring is this? <laughs> you had like, I mean, these pretty pictures, but they had six stages, and I was like, I, this is so awful. Like, what am I going to do? And so they could just memorize them and trivia and all of this, or they could make a poster. Mm-hmm. But I was like, no, there's got to be a better way. Mm-hmm. So then I started thinking, okay, what if it's like a mystery puzzle and they have to like collect cards and like collect things in that cycle and they can steal from each other. And so it started off really, really, really simple. But I was trying to think about how to use that. And, and I, I probably subconsciously like just rely on all the games that I know, right? Really common mm-hmm. ones. Like, you know, I don't know, like Uno or Rummy or or let's see what else. Like basic things. Like I once made a game like modified from operation. Mm-hmm. But like it's games that they are already familiar with. It's easy to start there because then they're not so scared of the mechanic. And then I try and adapt it and think okay, which game is most like my concept? Mm-hmm. And then how can I twist that that makes it interesting and unique to what I'm doing? So, yeah, the mushroom ended up being like kind of like the game Spoons where you like you like shuffle cards around mm-hmm. and then you see, okay, once I have this full complete mushroom, then you smack something and, oh, I have the mushroom. <laughs> and then um, I was like, this is kind of fun, but I – there's so many more cycles I now have to teach them. How am I going to do this? <laughs> I can't do that every single time. Mm-hmm. And so I was sitting there and I was like, I'll just make it like rummy where you have to like collect them and, and have that kind of mechanic. And I was adapting that. And that's where 
John came in and was like, we'll take what the kids love. They love Pokemon. We knew that. Mm-hmm. And they love, like, like, what are their interests? And so we took the powers idea and added the powers on. So it's more like you take a game they are familiar with and you add layers on it until it's interesting and fun and unique. And then I would just play test it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, first with like my fellow teachers and with my kids and my kids' friends. And, you know, there's always something wrong with it, you know. Like, or like things don't end up the way you thought they would. And mm-hmm. like, like, okay, I have to scrap that. And this is terrible. And um, it's, I mean, it's basically the engineering method. Right. Which is like you you design it, you build it, you test mm-hmm. it, and then you improve it. So it's STEM, the whole process. And, uh, yeah, it's a lot of playtesting. And, mm-hmm. um, and then you finally, like, try it out in the classroom and see how it goes and hope for the best. Yeah. <laughs> but, Well, yeah. and I always, I always love playtesting my games with my students because, you know, they don't have that a lot of the same filter. They don't have the experience that I have in gaming, but they also don't have that limiting sort of innate filter we put on things. So it's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know what would be cool is blah. Now, they may not have any idea how to get to blah, and I may not have any idea of how to get to blah, but that idea might actually work, and it kind of mm-hmm. lends you somewhere. So I always say, like, I mean, unless you're developing an 18xx game, really, you know. <laughs> get your game in front of kids because you get a different type of feedback that you will not get from adults by any measure. Yeah. And they'll tell you this is terrible or this is great. Like they'll flat out tell you like they don't care. Like they just don't realize. Well, it's yeah. Cause I have a high school kid who's been, uh, he's my cadet teacher. So he comes down and helps out in my classes. And one day he play tested a kid's game and I hear him telling the kid, yeah, he's like, this is actually pretty terrible. It's really boring. I don't have any choices. So like, Oh, Hey, come here, buddy. Um, Let's and actually the kid was like you're right it is it's terrible I'm like no let's let's focus on like asking questions like what were you trying to do and like <laughs> how can we give him feedback in a way that's constructive not pushing him down this deep dark hole of shame and <laughs> yeah you know and it's and that's I think a good part about you know when I have my kids play test is so much is is focused on improvement and new ideas that. You know, they can tell each other what's not working, but they can also give each other a lot of different tools to help them get out, you know. Yeah, teach them the constructive criticism. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have any kind of topic for a game that you would like to see or that you're, you know, you don't know how you could make it just yet, but you're still playing around with? Yeah, so, and that's actually one of the things that I do when I talk to other teachers um, is, like, what is hardest for you to teach? Like, Mm -hmm. that's just boring, and the kids aren't interested. And for me, like, in my bio classes, it's definitely, like, photosynthesis and respiration. Mm -hmm. And I have not made that game yet, but I was like, there has to be a way to make this, like, it's not so awful to learn. Well, you know, that's Um, actually funny, because um, our seventh grade science teachers who teach life science a few years ago... It's asked me if I could help them with a game on that topic <laughs> for the same reason. And I was like, oh, okay. And the thing, too, is it's also like, you know, they don't necessarily realize, and not in a bad way, but 
how long this takes to actually make something that's workable, you know? Yeah. Well, and so I was just with everything else. I didn't have the time I wanted to put to it. And I found some game online and it was really simple. It was like a dice rolling thing. It was not great. But you know what, though? Kids will play a bad game mm-hmm. over sitting there taking notes, filling out a worksheet, yes. coloring mm-hmm. in the sections or whatever. Kids are like, they don't care if they if there's a winner and a loser, okay. Because look at some of the games kids play on playgrounds. You know, they're barely mm-hmm. games. You know, yeah. they're inherently unfair. The rules are, you know, questionable at best. You know, <laughs> and they are happy to play. And I think that's something that... We put these sorts of expectations on ourselves as teachers, and if we were more willing to, you know, make bad games and have kids play them, then you would actually start making better games because then you get feedback on them or you see something when they're happening like, oh my gosh, I totally should have thought of this. Well, cool. Then you get to go back and revamp it and there you go. Yeah, absolutely. And like, they really will, like, they'll play the simplest thing, like, and we as board game lovers are like, that game is awful. Mm-hmm. But they just like just love just yeah. do like, something interesting. Will, yeah, when I just I went to Iceland last week with a bunch of uh, students because I make amazing choices and um, <laughs> it was so fun. Um, but one night we had nothing to do after dinner and we're in the middle of you know we're up in northern Iceland you know as you are. And um, I brought all kinds of games with me, all kinds of games with me, Um, lots of little oink games because they're small, Um, all kinds of just like, and then small box games, card games, sushi go, you know, that sort of thing. (laughs) And it's really funny because like I bring all these games and they're games they play in my classroom and everything. And I look over and one table is playing Uno because somebody brought (laughs) Harry Potter Uno. And guess what? (laughs) They love the Harry Potter. So they're playing Harry Potter Uno over the table. I'm like, Uno? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, wait, are you playing it where you have to draw until somebody gets the card they need? They're like, yeah. I'm like, you understand. That is making that game like 15,000 times longer than it needs to be. And they're like, yeah, it's hilarious. I'm like, oh. And we have to remember that's okay. You know what I mean? Like if they're having fun with it, they're not giving up. They're not throwing Uno across the room. They're not slamming it down and quitting. Adults do that when they get fussy and, you know, somebody takes their spot in work or placement game. And adults act worse in games than kids do because yeah. kids are okay with imperfect, you know, incomplete rule sets. If it means they're having fun, they're okay with it. Yeah, they're fine. I had a similar experience in my classroom because I have this, like, cart of board games to play if there's, you know, like, in our homeroom, if there's, like, downtime in the homeroom. And they'll always play, like, Connect Four. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what? Or Battleship. And, you know, that's fine. Like, But they won't play, like, anything that I think is more fun. But they, they have a blast. Mm-hmm. So funny. And, oh, my gosh. And that reminds me. When I play Tacto with kids, because you can play with ages six and up, mm-hmm. the kids just immediately start playing. No quite Like, they just get it. They're just into it. No problems. The adults are like, okay, how can I, like over strategize this and and do this and and it's a totally different mindset Mm -hmm. and then also with our crazy cats we we asked them for the superpower bonus round like what what they would like to see and all these kids gave ideas and um so we narrowed on the list and, and one of them was invisibility so like you you've drawn this amazing cat that you're so proud of it's so goofy and silly and funny and then you have invisibility that you have to somehow draw. 
And you will not believe the kids just wipe it away. They think it's hilarious. And I was like, that's horrible. And every adult was like, no. But the kids love it. And they wanted to keep that one because they loved it so much. It's just, it blows my mind. But that's why, yeah, you're right. We should always test with kids because they have a different viewpoint on everything. Right. Right. And if we'd only designed with adults for kids, then kids would be like, yeah, I learned a lesson. The concepts was acquired. Thank you very much. You know? <laughs> Do you want to play this again? No. <laughs> you know? Like, it's okay. Yeah. And I think your point, though, and I think this is one of the best points, is if you are a teacher and you're wanting to design games in the classroom, looking at simple games and how you can adapt the rules to fit what you want for your concept. Um, and sticking with the classics. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, if there's some way that... You want kids to pair things up. Is this something that then you could use with memory? Is this something that you could use with Old Maid? And you could see how even with a game with Old Maid, you could add, you know, special abilities and stuff like that. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just, you know, if you can teach the concept and the kids are having fun with it, and it takes a while to get there, like everything Catherine's saying, you know, and you've been doing this for a long time, you know, and you're a very smart person and you've got lots of experience, but there are times when... You design something and it doesn't work and you have to be willing to, you know, go back to the drawing board. But my thing is always, if I'm not willing to do that, like, how can I expect kids to do that? We talk about failure mm -hmm. and all these things and how they're so important for kids. They're also important for adults, too, because we have to, you know, kind of get out of our own, like, senses of superiority, our, our expert levelness, And we just need to show the kids that we can make mistakes as well. Yeah, and that's a really hard lesson to learn, but it's so valuable for you if you can just take the feedback and change it and not be hung up on things. Mm -hmm. It makes it so much better. Yeah. Well, this is so interesting. Well, let's since we've got a little hair of time left, let's talk a little bit about, um, since we dabbled on autism before, because I think there's a lot of things, too, as far as in your research and what you learned about autism that can benefit teachers with, with and without games. Yeah, so, like, first of all, like, with games, games are a really powerful tool of reaching kids with autism. Like, they're not, like, severe autism, but kind of in the middle. And mm -hmm. when I was a long-term sub before I was a teacher, um, I had to sit there and usually the I was assigned, you know, book work with them and let's do this page and that page. And it was very straightforward and they would do it, but, like, they wouldn't really interact with me and... I couldn't really tell, like, how they felt about it. Like, were they getting it? And I don't know. I just, it wasn't, I wasn't really reaching the kid. And so um, I brought in some board games one day. Um, and I actually brought in Pandemic, actually. And so we started to play, and I explained the rules. And all of a sudden, this, this boy, like, looked me in the eye. And he took turns, and he knew what was going on, and he actually made a joke, which he does not do. Like, mm -hmm. it, And I, I was blown away, but, like, I could connect with him on this social, like, emotional level that he wasn't there before. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel like games can really open them up because they're structured social situations. They, they're comfortable. They understand the rules. They know what they're supposed to do. It's not like, okay, I have to try and understand your facial expression, and that's it's too complicated for them. But if they can understand the game, that's a really good framework of reaching these kids. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then as a whole, like a non-game related, um, I do know, like, so if you see a lot of their repetitive behaviors, like I think I mentioned earlier, like the hand flapping or the head banging or, you know, it depends how severe it is, but um, it's because of stress. And in the brain, what's happening usually is they're very sensitive to sensory input Mm -hmm. because when the brain's being formed for everybody, it forms way too many connections um, and they're actually pruned back. So it's like survival of the fittest for your neurons. Mm -hmm. And what happens in autism is that they're not pruned back. So they have all these connections that we don't have. And so what sounds like a normal noise to us is, like, amplified, like, ten times to them. Mm-hmm. Or, like, you know, so like, touch. They're very sensitive to touch sometimes or taste or smell. And it's because it's amplified so much in their head. And you can imagine they're going to reach sensory overload pretty quickly if all of that's going on. It's like, you know, if I came screaming into the room and just, like, blared my music at you while you were trying to do your worksheet, that would be really annoying. <laughs> like. Mm-hmm. It's just too much, and so you have to either run away or, or calm yourself down. Lots of like leg shaking, finger tapping, all kinds of things. Um, and so, just be like, look out for their signs because they are more sensitive to everything around them. Even though it seems like they're shut off because they're not communicating, they're there, right? And they're seeing everything and and they're observing everything. It's just, and sometimes it's just too much for them yeah well one thing that was really helpful when i was learning about autism was the um agent versus object um difference Mm -hmm. that you know a person is an agent and a chair is an object and sometimes for people with autism if you you know just come burst in the room like hey how are you doing all that it almost like slips back into since they have difficulty reading the emotion and difficulty understanding the facial gesture it's like you become an object and so imagine then you know, they're sitting there in a chair burst in the room making all this noise, you know, and that mm-hmm. would, you know, obviously like upset you if that happened, it would freak you out. Well, that's what happens to kids with autism all the time is mm-hmm. that, you know, agent versus object, mm-hmm. you know, sort of uh, difference comes into play. And I thought that was really interesting and I think really helpful as far as understanding where some of these behaviors can come as well. And I think it makes us, you know, we're sort of used to, you know, we only have so much time. We've got all these different things that come a plate, come across. But then when you have those students in the room, it does mean you have to change what you're doing in order mm-hmm. to suit them and to fit them. And, you know, if people aren't willing to do that, then, you know, it's not helping. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been so interesting. I'm really excited mm-hmm. for you. I'm really excited for Cat Lily and and where you're going with your game company. Thank you. I'm excited. And um, yeah, it's me and my my interns. <laughs> but yeah. they're really loyal, amazing people. And hopefully we get you know, one of these contracts soon. And, and then you'll see us in stores. That's so awesome. Do you have any advice for people who want to teach and run a business as well at the same oh. time? <laughs> um, I'm pretty stressed out right now. So I don't know if I have the best advice, but... Um, Really, my best advice is just to never give up. Because there are so many days, and here comes my pig again, 
But there's so many days where I'm just tired and I'll be like, I don't want to go to our weekly company meeting. I'm exhausted. Mm -hmm. But every time I do, I make myself go. I have the best time. And you just got to remember, like, to keep going. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, most of my days are, are, I get bad news. I don't get yeses all the time. I get only yeses like 10% of the time. Most people say no. I don't like your game or no, I, I don't want to make your game or whatever it is, but I just keep going. And I think that's the difference is that most companies will like just, if you're a startup, it'll give up in the first couple of years because it's so psychologically damaging mm-hmm. that someone's telling you no all the time. But I, I just keep going. I'm like, okay, fine. So really that's yeah. the best advice. I think so too. Cause we talk about that with our, with my students There's a really great quote from Ira Glass, and I'll have them put this in the notes. Um, but basically, it's about the process that we undergo and how in the beginning, you know, you have good taste, and that's why you started doing something, but then it gets really hard, and the work isn't as good as you want, and this is, and a lot of people stop. And so when I read this quote with my students, I talk about the difference between a successful game designer and one who isn't successful is perseverance, because an unsuccessful game designer can't handle the negative feedback gives up, puts it on the shelf, doesn't think about it anymore, doesn't want to, you know, face that, you know, process of mostly failure. Whereas successful game designers, you know, when you see a game that's so good, you know, we don't see all the work and all the stress and all the no's that came before that helped turn it into the game that it is. So, um, and I think especially with teachers, you know, we have a lot of no's coming at us all the time too, from things that are just sort of like systemic in the system to, you know, kids being resistant to our own limitations sometimes. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, keeping, you know, just keep going is the best any of us can do. That's awesome. Yes. Yeah. So well, it's harder than you would think. <laughs> but yeah. It's totally worth it every time. Well, and uh, when we hang out this summer, I'll buy you a nice big drink. So. <laughs> I look forward to it. Yay. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for being on here. If people want to find out more about Cat Lily Games, how can they find you? Yes, so our website is catlily.com, and it's spelled weird. So it's C-A-T-L-I-L-L-I.com. And that's the cat is from my first name, Catherine, and the lily is from my original co-founder's last name. So we just merged them. Um and that's where we are. So we do sell our games on our website and at local events and hopefully other places soon. Oh, that's so exciting. Well, I am Kathleen Burkery, as always, your goddess of games and schools and libraries. New title. I just gave it to myself. Um, if you want to reach out <laughs> well, to me, you can find me on Twitter at, at Mercury with seven M's. Um, you can also contact me through my website, KathleenMercury.com, where all my game design teaching resources are available for free um, because of love. And this has been another episode of Games and Schools and Libraries. Catherine, thank you again. This has been so great. Thank you so much, Kathleen. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. That's awesome. And for all my teacher friends out there, we are so close to the end of the year. Hang in there, fourth quarter. You got this. And we'll see you soon. Bye. (laughs) Bye. A podcast produced in association between Inverse Genius and the Georgetown County Library System. For more information about the show and the people who create it, you can head over to InverseGenius.com and also find out more about our other podcasts, 
like on board games, on RPGs, the Inverse Genius Podcast, and the Room Escape Divas. If you would like to be on the show or have questions, comments, or ideas for episodes, please contact us at schoolsandlibraries at gmail.com and let us know. We do have our episodes booked out for several weeks in advance, so if you have something time-sensitive, you will want to contact us as early as possible. 